I feel like I'm about to personally insult you, but I've never liked breakfast foods. What kind of breakfast foods? Like any type of breakfast foods. So I like bacon. I particularly hate sausage. I've never been impressed by eggs of like any sort. But you can make all kinds of eggs. You can make scrambled eggs, scrambled eggs with cheese. You can do fried eggs. For fried eggs, you can do sunny side up. You can do over easy. You can make omelets. Yeah, I've never had an omelet I was like impressed by. There's never. like whole omelet bars. I know I've been to like omelet bars and I've had them like make an omelet with what I would ideally like, and then I like, like cheese. Eat. Yeah, cheese, bacon, chives, like all kinds of things that like I enjoy. But then I get the omelet and I like eat it, and I just think I would rather be eating cereal. I'm Doctor Dustin Edwards, and I'm Faith Cox, and this is Dramomics, where we go to B from A in the most roundabout way. A mix of microbiology and history, in this series we connect different aspects of modern life and society to microbes through seemingly unconnected natural events, discoveries, and inventions. So, how did T-bone steaks link to cholera outbreaks? Let's find out. I hear that the Waffle House sells more T-bone steaks than anybody else in the world with like over 150 million T-bone steaks sold since they opened in 1955. Are there really that many people eating steak and eggs? I would have to guess so. I've never once in my life had, I guess, steak and eggs for breakfast. I've always done like pancakes and bacon and and eggs and toast and all the, what I would call like standard things. T-bone steaks just seem too fancy for breakfast. Maybe. Okay, so my issue with breakfast foods is that I don't think there's like enough flavor for the amount of time you put into it. So in the time that I could make like an omelet or like scrambled eggs, I could also make spaghetti. What I'm trying to say is maybe steak and eggs would be like a better option for me because it's like more flavor. Maybe. Maybe. I had no idea that Waffle House was like selling that many T-bone steaks again. Yeah. Yeah. They're extraordinarily popular chain, I guess. Waffle House in general or? Yes. Yes. For breakfast. Really? Actually, probably they're open 24 hours a day. So you can probably eat anything you want there. Probably not everything you want there. But if you're hungry. Yeah. Their menu is probably like 24 hours. They're going to be open every. Yeah. Around the clock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're open like all the time, actually, um, including in storms. Are you familiar with the Waffle House Index? I've heard of it, but I'm not overly familiar with it. All right. What do you know about the Waffle House Index? From my understanding of it is that there are, like if a storm comes through, FEMA will look to see if the Waffle House is closed or not and how many of them have closed and how long it takes for them to reopen as kind of an indicator on whether on a cow commerce is going to do in that area, like whether whether the the damage from the storm was going to shut down businesses for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's essentially the gist of it. So um, in 2004, I can't remember his name, but the director of FEMA, he sent out his men to go drive around to see how many like waffle houses were open in an area. And he said, like, if they're open and serving everything, like, keep driving. That's not where the damage is. And if they're, like, serving a limited menu, take note of it. But that's not where the damage is. But if they're all the way closed, the area is really bad. So the Waffle House Index is an informal metric used by FEMA just to gauge how bad a storm's damage was to an area. They have red, yellow, and green. Major companies like Walmart or Waffle House have great risk management teams, so they're able to talk with the risk management and see what they need to do to prepare for storms, and that allows them to stay open during storms. 
And that's how the Waffle House got like their Waffle House index is that they plan with the risk management, how to prepare for storms coming in. They train their workers to know how to continue working in these conditions. They have alternative menus to use in case they like lose um, access to fresh water or access to the electricity. They have backup generators and they bring in like tanks of fuel to power those generators. All of this allows them to only close when they absolutely need to. So like when a storm is at its worst or when they have like a genuine concern for the workers' safety. How bad does a storm have to be before they bail out? Like, do they tell workers to go home beforehand, or is it like an afterthought? Like, the the store or the the restaurant is just absolutely wrecked, and so at that point the the workers don't come in. Or does Waffle House and Walmart like know ahead of time to tell the workers not to come in? It's a very well thought out process. So they receive like extensive training on how to work in these conditions. As well as like the management has like this book of like things to do and to be checking on. But also corporate is like really involved in this. So they have like this war room that they set up where they bring in like extra TVs and they're all in like their laptops. Like it's something you would see out of like a political documentary where like the president's like in the war room deciding to like bomb somewhere. But it's Waffle House deciding if their workers should be working or not. It's fantastic. There's photos of it on Twitter. And it's truly great. So they bring in like meteorologists, IT specialists, plumbers, contractors, all kinds of people who are going to be there like to assess the damage and see how bad it is and at what point they need to like pull their workers out. If there's going to be like a longer storm, they actually make these uh, jump teams. So the jump teams are like volunteers from perhaps like the surrounding area that was unaffected. So maybe like subdivisions around Houston, but not Houston itself. So these jump teams have volunteers on them that can work the Waffle House and get it open if they have to close and the workers who are supposed to be working there like need to go home to their families. Then they bring in outside Waffle House employees to come work it. But it's not just your average Waffle House employee either. They're not asking people to like risk their lives. They actually bring in like their CEO to come work it too. It's it's like the high ups. Everyone is involved. It's not like these plebeians working. It's everyone invested. It's amazing. Like I've seen convoys of... Um, like the power company, and you would just see what looks like half a mile of trucks, utility trucks from all these different utility companies and, and power companies going down the road and then staging just outside of the storm area. So Waffle House has a convoy? I think to call it like a convoy is inaccurate. It's more like they bring people from the outside close enough to jump in when help is like as soon as the road's clear they'll like switch out their jump team for the locals so the locals can like obviously they can go home to their families when they want but oh, that makes a lot of sense yeah because it's so the waffle house never has to close yeah i guess if you're in the impacted area your your home is probably maybe yeah, flooded. yeah yeah so they like the management of the local waffle house like that's going to be affected they discuss with their workers ahead of time if they're going to be able to work at all if they need to stay home with their families as well as like if they need to stay home they make a list of like the workers that might need extra help. So say like, so say that there's like three guys like Bobby, Daryl and like Jim and Bobby, like he's a single dad and he's like two kids, so he can't work. So then they'll like make a note of that. And maybe the manager will send like Daryl to go help Bobby with his kids in his house. They're tr- it's almost like a, like a family community. It's wonderful. Just as a fun like tidbit with Katrina, um, it was one of the first ones that they really did this preparation for and it was one of their beginning stages so every time there's like a major hurricane or tornado or like anything waffle house tries to improve its risk management 
And with Katrina, they had to bring in like armed guards to guard their food and like fuel supplies that could keep serving people. Katrina was an absolute mess. I don't think I have anything positive to say about Katrina. So I was across the street from the Astrodome. That's where I lived at. And that's where they evacuated everybody to. And nobody was prepared on either end of that. And it was just chaos. Um, I did have quite a few uncles and aunts that lived there and they made it out. But whenever you think about hurricanes, I've been through a few of them. But when you have absolute devastation, you you have to think about the people and how important having things actually is. And so when my when my aunt and uncle uh, moved in with my dad for uh, a short amount of time after the storm, because there was no going back to to where they lived at, but just little things like uh, not having towels or a toothbrush. Uh, at the beginning, you think, oh, it's just a towel, it's just a toothbrush. But then you have to, like, get a towel, and then you have to get a toothbrush, and then you start realizing all the things that you need as a person, and then just everything up to that moment in your life is different. It, from here on out, your life's going to be different. And um, and then they had um, a sister, so I guess it's one of, like an aunt-in-law. So they lost their their first house. They were in Chalmette, there by New Orleans, to Katrina. And then, you know, life goes on. I guess it's been quite a few years since then. And, and they had kids, and the kids eventually had grandkids. And, and their kids and grandkids had gone back to Louisiana and had built a new, you know, built a life for themselves. And so they were going to move back to Louisiana, you know, leave Houston area and go back to Louisiana. And right when they were selling their house, their second house got destroyed by a hurricane just a couple of years ago. Which one was that? Was that Ike? Uh, Ike and Harvey have both been pretty... Well, well, oh, Harvey. Yeah, it was oh, okay. Harvey. Yep. Yeah, if it was like in the last couple of years, it was Harvey. Yeah, it was Harvey. Yeah, so Waffle House kind of promotes... Or not really promotes that they do this, but they like to say that by staying open, they provide a sense of like normalis, nor, normacy? normalcy? Normalcy. Normalcy. Thank you. Uh, for the people who are affected, but also, um, like the rescue workers that get sent in, they're a lot of times not locals, so they need somewhere to like sit and eat as well. So they like to pride themselves on being able to serve those like first responders. So Waffle House has three levels that they operate at. They have green, which is a full menu. Everything's like okay, that's what you normally see, and a lot of times they can like continue operating at that. Like during uh like Category One hurricane. There's just going to be a lot of wind damage for the most part. Um, after that, they have yellow, which is a limited menu. So at that point, electricity may be um, being provided by a backup generator. Their food supplies may be low or they may not have like ready access to running water, but they have stocks of like bottled water. They change their menu to accommodate that. Um, if you Google this, actually, you can like find the different menus. There's like four different menus. There's one for the backup generator, a green menu, um, low water menu, and then like a fourth one that I can't remember what it is. After that, you only have red. And so at that point, the Waffle House needs to close. Um, that's really, really bad. Like I said, they try to stay open for first responders. Sometimes they'll go to red and shut down for like the day. But then as soon as everything's like clear, they're slid in their jump team. But if it has to close normally by that point, FEMA knows the area has been like very badly affected. Did you learn anything about how long a Waffle House has stayed in the red? Yeah, there were some, I can't remember if it was after Katrina or Harvey, that they just never reopened. 
it's just like a permanently shut down. Yeah, yeah, they, it just wasn't worth the like the investment to reopen. The flooding damage can be like so extensive that like once once the integrity of like a building starts to be compromised, a lot of times a business or a family won't continue to invest in it because the amount of money it would take to just replace like a foundation or um like the beams that hold it is too much. Right. So what's the average time then for a standing waffle house to reopen once it hits the red? I don't know. It's going to depend on like the storm, so I, I don't know. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like I said, they have their their war room set up. So um like the CEO and the chair, like all of these people are there actively deciding when is it safe for our workers to be there? When do we need to pull them out? When do we need to send the jump team in? Their utmost concern is like the worker safety and then providing to the community as best they can. So Hurricane Dorian, the most recent hurricane, caused a couple waffle houses in South Carolina to hit the red and close. And Hurricane Harvey in 2017 caused, I think, six waffle houses in Houston to hit red and close, even though Hurricane Harvey was only a category four. So you might think that only a category, only a category four four as compared to a five. Like I've been through a three with Hurricane Alicia, and that was pretty intense. What year was that? 1983. Yeah. So like when Dorian hit, what was it? The Caribbean? It was at a five. So it was like an obvious red. But people might be assuming that because Waffle House put so much like planning and infrastructure and like risk management into staying open, they might only be closing in fives. But it's not really, the categories only has to do with the wind damage occurring, like the speed at which the uh, hurricane is moving out. Like I said earlier, one of the big reasons that Waffle Houses or like businesses in general close during a hurricane is more so about the flooding. So the categories just refer to the speed that the wind is moving at. It's not about like the amount of flooding that's going to occur. So hurricanes are getting worse. Um, By worse, I specifically mean they're getting more intense. The frequency at which hurricanes are occurring isn't increasing per se, but hurricanes are projected to get more intense as global warming increases. But I saw on the news, our president said he's never seen a Category 5 before. We have had several Category 5 hurricanes during his presidency. Did they all hit Alabama? No. No, no. No, they haven't been hitting Alabama. I don't... When was the last time we had one hit Alabama? Like the actual hurricane, not like the storm portion, but like the actual hurricane. Because once it like makes land, it'll weaken and continue like going up. And so you can get like the remnants of a hurricane up in like Idaho, but it's not the actual hurricane. Is that the Sharpie line? (laughs) That is not the Sharpie line, sir. (laughs) Sharpie gate. (laughs) Why? This is not the time to get into that. We can talk about that later. So, hurricanes are expected to get more intense as global warming increases. This is because the real fuel for, like, hurricanes is heat. So, heat is just a form of energy, and so it's, like, a fundamental law that energy doesn't ever, like, disappear. It just gets, like, transferred to other things. So, as the oceans get, like, warmer, they're just taking this energy. And as the air gets warmer, they're just, like, taking this energy, and that provides more fuel for hurricanes. So global warming is making hurricanes more intense through a couple of ways. There is an increase in the sea surface temperature, which, um, like I said, is providing more fuel for the hurricanes. If you like, need an example for that, Katrina was 
not like weak per se before it hit the Gulf of Mexico, but it got notably stronger because all that warm helps it go like faster. And it, um, well, the, the Gulf of Mexico is shallower, right? So it's going to be warmer than the Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, it's shallower. So it's going to be warmer than the Atlantic. Um, but the problem is as global warming increases, the overall, um, surface temperature of like water is getting higher. So it's holding more energy, which is going to add more fuel for hurricanes. So it's like not a problem that's exclusive to the Gulf of Mexico. It's happening overall, including in like the Pacific. So it's it's not an isolated event. Um, another problem that's occurring is as global warming like increases, like the ice caps are melting. So it's going to make the sea levels rise. Higher sea levels are going to give like a higher baseline for storm surges to occur. A storm surge is just the initial surge of water from the ocean onto a coast before the hurricane actually hits. So the pressure causes all the water to like be forced towards the coast. That's where a lot of the damage and deaths actually occur. Well, a, a hurricane's a low pressure system, right? So it's yeah. Did I explain that wrong? No, no. You're just explaining how there would be like a like it's the pressure change like that causes an, it, like a higher water, like a ring of higher water in front of the hurricane. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you just like. If you like push on jello, everything goes like out from where you pushed. The same thing happens with a hurricane. If your finger is the hurricane and the jello is the water. <laughs> so in Hurricane Katrina, at least 1,500 people um, died with the cause kind of being the storm surge, whether it was like direct or indirect. It can be linked back to the storm surge. How many people died in Katrina total? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. I know the the storm that had the, the highest death toll for people was the 1900 storm that hit Galveston. Yeah, that one was wicked. It was uh, 8,000 people died in that one. Right, yeah. So the official numbers would be 8,000, but I've seen numbers that were uh, close to 12,000. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that too. And it was, it was the storm surge that came through and... It, there was another town, we don't even see it on the maps anymore, called Indianola. It was hit by a hurricane not long before that one, and it decimated the city, And but everybody returned back to it. And then it got hit by another hurricane, and now it's not there anymore. There is no Indianola, Texas. And so the... You know, people aren't stupid. They were like, well, we're here on Galveston. It's essentially just a big sandbar. Maybe we need a seawall. Yeah, yeah. They built a seawall after that. After, but they wanted it beforehand. And their meteorologist was saying, no, it's not going to hit. We're not going to get a hurricane to hit Galveston. And so they didn't build the seawall. Yeah. And then the storm surge hit in nineteen hundred with that 1900 storm, and it killed all of those people. Now there's a seawall. In fact, they, they've added onto it yeah they have the seawall and didn't you tell us once that uh when we when we went to galveston to tour utmb you told us that they like raised the city in essence right yeah yeah if you look at uh the large buildings oh, yeah there. yeah i remember reading about that so they were only um like a couple meters higher than like sea level when the storm like surge initially happened and then after that they raised it um like 10 meters or something just so hopefully yeah, when those, another storm surge occurred that it would not be able to like hit them. <laughs> right. So when you look at those buildings, those aren't basement windows. That used to be the first floor. And right, they, right. They backfilled okay. it in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Houston had the same thing after, I think, Ike. They had like a vote as to whether they would build a better system, I guess like levees to help block the water from coming in. And they voted to not. And then less than 10 years later, they get hit by Harvey. 
Yeah, we've had flooding in Houston uh, before. There was a, a, a tropical storm, Allison, mm-hmm. that, that came and it just lingered. So it wasn't really about wind. It was just the amount of rainfall and it, it wasn't progressing out of the region. So it was just kind of stalled there. And it just ra- started raining for many, many days and everything flooded. I know where the lab I worked in flooded. Uh, Baylor College of Medicine and others in the Texas Medical Center had flooded. And, you know, they used to have like the animal labs down there. Mm-hmm. And so after the fact, they went and built walls and pumps. They they lifted the generators up off the ground. They moved the animal lab so it would never happen again. Was the animal lab like at ground level and they raised it up or what? It was underground. Uh, oh, God. It was in the basement. Oh. Did they drown? Yes. Yeah, a lot was learned about that. That's a bummer. Uh, There are cities in like, or not cities, there are like, yeah, cities and countries in Asia that, so they get really bad like typhoons and cyclones there too. Cyclone? Cyclops? Cyclone. 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 (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so they've done like way better to manage these storms as they come. Um, I don't really know why Houston isn't making that same effort, but. They've had the votes to do it, and they keep turning it down. Well, it's it's progress, and so whenever a hurricane hits, they'll go and they'll look at the damage, and then they'll kind of district it. And so when something gets damaged, they'll be like, well, in the future, these buildings need to have this level of architecture. Hmm. Perhaps they should go back to thinking about the proposed levee system. Only because hurricanes are projected to get more intense, particularly through their rainfall. So it was like extremely problematic was Har- with Harvey was the amount of like unprecedented rainfall that occurred. The National Weather Service actually had to add two more darker shades of purple to compensate for the amount of rain that they were receiving because an amount like that had never happened before. It wasn't like something we had seen. It wasn't something that we had, like, I'm sure it was a thought, but it wasn't anything that we really thought about. It was just like a distant thought. Like, what if this happened? It ended up happening. They had to add the extra colors just to, like, show people how bad it was. So currently, scientists and meteorologists are arguing over whether a new category needs to be added for the super intense hurricanes that are beginning to occur and projected to continue. Currently, we have Category 1 hurricanes, which are 74 to 95 miles per hour wind speeds. Category 2, which is 96 to 110 miles per hour wind speeds. Category 3, which is 111 to 129 miles per hour wind speeds. Category 4, which is 130 to 156. Category 5, which is 157, like, onwards. But we're only getting, like, worse and worse hurricanes. Like, ones, obviously, there's always going to be one that we've, like, never seen before. But these super intense ones are getting more common, so they're arguing over whether they need to add a sixth category to compensate for these super strong ones. So as hurricanes uh, get more intense, they're more likely to like cause flooding. Hurricanes causing flooding is problematic because standing water is known to increase mosquito populations. After Hurricane Harvey, Houston did like up their mosquito control measures. What do they do for that? I know they um, there's like mosquito fish that they can put into pools. Um, there's chemicals that they can spray from trucks. Is there anything in addition they do? Yeah, so I was reading primarily that they were like spraying pesticides, um, like from airplanes. That was the primary From thing. From an airplane? Yeah, yeah. Well, they'd have to, like, miss the whole city. Any any stagnant water, mosquitoes will, like, find and breed in. No, that so, makes a lot of sense. I just, wow, I didn't Yeah, no, didn't no, they had, like, it. the whole city to, like, compensate for. So right, because you, have, you like, probably can't drive down these roads, and so you would need 
to well, do it by air. Yeah, they're swampy, but then um, just little puddles that are going to like form in people's yards need to be addressed too. Or you're going to have like outstandingly large mosquito populations. And West Nile virus is known to circulate like within the mosquitoes in Houston, so they need it to get rid of them. So I guess something that a, a just a normal person can do is just look outside and if you have like a bucket of water, go ahead and empty it out or just look for anything where water might be standing in afterwards. Yeah, yeah you can do that. But the issue with the flooding is the soil is so super saturated. Even if you do that, the, like it may not go anywhere. The water may just continue in like your grass. So storms kind of get, or not storms, natural events such as like hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes kind of get this unfair perspective that they're contributing to disease outbreak and they are in a way but not in the way that people think some people think like if you see a dead body from someone who drowned in the hurricane that they're like actively spreading disease in the water and that's not necessarily true the outbreaks from hurricanes and earthquakes and things tend to be more from unsanitary conditions caused by massive amounts of population dis um population displacement displacement thank you my mind like it left um, <laughs> so specifically their proximity to safe water and functioning bathrooms, the nu nutritional status of the population, their level of immunity to vaccine preventable diseases and access to health care, like the primary factors that need to be considered um, as to whether an outbreak is going to occur. So like, obviously you want people to be immune to measles. So you want to have like a vaccinated population. If they're not having access to health care, they're not going to know like when something's wrong. Um, their nutritional status, if you are already malnourished, then like when you get sick, it'll have a much harsher toll on you than it would have if you were like eating your vegetables. And these people that are displaced don't always like have the opportunity to do that. But what I want to talk about is proximity to safe water and functioning bathrooms. So before that, I've read of cases that may have been in, with Haiti in which some of the disease outbreaks actually occur from volunteers coming to there to help out to actually bring a pathogen in with them um i didn't read about that but it would make sense in the same way that like the same thing happened with like america whenever columbus and them came you can transmit um so like if a population doesn't have an acquired immunity and they haven't been exposed to, like a pathogen someone brings it in it's entirely new the population will be like heavily hit um i don't remember specifically what, but I do remember Haiti um, after their 2010 earthquake uh, reading that they had a lot of outbreaks. I remember like news about it, how just like horrible and like sick the people were because they didn't have access to like clean water and bathrooms. And so in those conditions, it like allows a lot of like fecal oral diseases to just like thrive. What kind of fecal oral diseases? In Haiti? Yeah. What is a fecal oral disease? Okay. So a fecal oral disease is a um, like infection that occurs uh, typically through the consumption of uh, something that's contaminated with like fecal matter. So it's not from like, <laughs> it's uh, more from someone like wiping and not washing their hands or, <laughs> or, I mean, you, you could probably catch something that way, but that's not the primary way that people are catching things. Um, it's more so like, so... In like an underdeveloped nation, they might be dumping their sewer into the river that they're also pulling water from. So that's where a lot of your fecal oral diseases are thriving. What's an example? One fecal oral disease that I am particularly um, intrigued by is cholera. So following Hurricane Katrina, there were two cases of Vibrio cholerae, 
confirmed in Louisiana. Um, while those cases were attributed to undercooked seafood, cholera is something that public health and CDC officials keep a lookout for following flooding and hurricanes. So cholera is an acute diarrheal infection caused by the bacteria Vibrio cholerae. Cholera is an extremely virulent disease that can cause watery diarrhea, vomiting, muscle fatigue, and death. Um, virulent just means like how severe the disease is. And it takes between 12 hours and 5 days to show symptoms after ingesting the bacteria. Um, the disease occurs through fecal-oral transmission, which is where you ingest like uh, food or water contaminated with fecal matter, or it's environmentally acquired. Um, there are roughly 1.3 to 4 million cases of cholera per year worldwide, and roughly 21,000 to 143 deaths. It's relatively rare in the U.S., but it's like endemic in other populations throughout the world. Fibrio cholerae is a gram-negative, comma-shaped bacterium. Gram-negative just means that a bacteria has an inner membrane and then a cell wall and then an outer membrane, as compared to a gram-positive bacteria that has an inner membrane and then a cell wall, so no outer membrane. Did you say it's comma-shaped? I always thought it looked like one of those um, puffy Cheetos. Yeah, yeah, so it's like a bit larger in, uh, <laughs> in ratio <laughs> than a comma. I, I, you could describe that as increased girth, but the length increases too. It just reminds me of a, of a puffy Cheeto with a long tail on it. I, that's an accurate description. I always think of jelly beans just because it's more fun, but a tailed Cheeto is fine. Um, it's a facultative anaerobe, meaning it can live in an aerobic environment as well as an anaerobic environment. So this means that it can survive in oxygen-containing or lacking oxygen environments. It was first isolated in 1854 by Filippo Pacini and then again by Robert Koch in 1884. Um, also in 1884, uh, around the 1850s, was the big London outbreak. Do you want to talk about that some, Dr. Edwards? Yeah, so there was a physician named John Snow that made a map. So he went and started looking at where cholera was occurring at and and pulled out a map and just started putting dots on there. And there turned out to be an epicenter. So there was a high concentration of dots around a water pump on Broad Street. And so he was he used that for evidence to convince officials to simply remove the water pump handle and it actually helped to diminish the cholera outbreak in London. Yeah, this led him to be called the father of epidemiology, right? That is correct. Um so cholera has a flagella on one end and a pilus on the other. A flagella is a tail like on a sperm cell, and then pili are just hair like appendages that are used to bind to other cells. The infectious dose is about 100 million to 100 billion bacteria. Um, the infectious dose is so high because the bacteria have to survive the acidic conditions of your stomach to get to the small intestine where they actually colonize. Um, but as a fun fact, people on proton pump inhibitors, um, which work to reduce the acidity of the stomach, may contract cholera with a lower infectious dose simply because their stomachs are less acidic as a result of taking this medicine. Colonization requires the toxin-co-regulated pilus, um, and those are those projections that I talked about earlier, and they use those to bind to the intestinal mucosal cells inside the small intestine. After they'll ba they're bound, they'll start to secrete the cholera toxin. This causes profuse diarrhea. Uh, 
How do you feel like about fried rice? I don't know a whole lot about fried rice. I rarely eat it, but I'm. You rarely eat it? Yeah. What I, kind I, of life are you living? I don't know. I will have like a Panda Express. That's about it. Okay, well, fried rice is like fantastic. I don't know how you're living your life like this. Um, but I watch a lot of like Asian cooking videos and they're very particular about their fried rice and like how it's made. And so they do a water rinse to get rid of like all the excess starches outside of the rice. And you just put your rice in like a strainer and then put water and you like swish it around to get all the starches off. And then you drain the rice and you're left with like this very like white tinge, like powdery looking water, like a really diluted slurry. Kind of like milky looking water? Yeah, kind of like milky looking. And so that's rice water. And a common way that cholera diarrhea is referred to is rice water stool because uh, basically all it is is like water and bacteria and dead cells being flushed out. So it gives it this rice water appearance. At peak production, a patient can produce 10 to 20 liters of diarrhea a day. How many gallons is that? I think around five gallons. I don't... I'm not very good at conversions, though, so don't like... I think I think you're right, around okay. five gallons. Okay, cool. Um, each liter of this poop can contain between 10 billion to 10 trillion bacteria. So it's like, that's a lot. So that's like your infectious dose right there, just in one single liter of shit. It's so much leaving the body that they have these special beds for cholera patients that just have a hole for where your ass goes. Um, so you, just like while you're sleeping, you just like continue leaking. And it's very, very important because they have to monitor like the outtake or not outtake, the output by these patients. Because for every like liter of fluid loss, it needs to be replaced or the patient will die. Um, when you're severely dehydrated, your blood vessels will collapse and then like the oxygen can't move through your blood anymore. And you'll essentially like suffocate through blood vessel collapse. A patient who has like severe cholera they can have so much diarrhea that it can kill them in, like, hours. It's not even a joke or, like, a days-long thing. If you think you have cholera, you need to get, like, immediate treatment because it can kill you in hours because your your body only contains so many liters of fluid, and it's less than 20. So if you're hitting that, like, peak output, it's more than your body can handle. Diarrhea is caused by secretion of the cholera toxin. Um, do you want to explain more about that, Dr. Edwards? Yeah, there's a protein in the cell membrane called the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, which is a mouthful. So I'm just going to call it the CFTR channel for short from now on. And uh, the CFTR is an ion channel. So if you don't know what ions are, they are charged atoms such as sodium or chloride or potassium. Now, normally the CFTR channel controls the flow of the negatively charged chloride atoms out of the cell. And this helps to adjust the amount of water in the small intestines. Uh, that's because when you have a higher concentration of chloride in the intestines, you will now have an increased amount of water flowing into the intestine by osmosis. Remember, osmosis is when water goes from an area of lower solute concentration across a membrane to an area of higher solute concentration. Now, binding of the cholera toxin to cells results in an increase in a messenger molecule called cyclic AMP, which causes the CTFR channel to open and stay open. With the negatively charged chloride now flowing out of the cell, it's also attracting positively charged sodium with it. 
With all this increase in ions in the intestine, osmosis causes the movement of water from the cells into the intestines, which leads to diarrhea. Yep. So the water leaves the cells and goes into the intestine, causing diarrhea. Um, but the cells don't really just like stop there. So cells aren't supposed to be depleted of water like that. So they'll start to pull water from your bloodstream to compensate for the water they lost otherwise. The problem comes once a cell is toxin damaged, it basically just becomes this like free flowing pump for water to leave the body. So it'll keep pulling water from the blood, causing severe dehydration and eventually death. So the treatment for cholera is mainly rehydration therapy. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, estimates that up to 80% of cases can be successfully treated with oral rehydration therapy. Um, oral rehydration therapy is just the ingestion of a salty, sugary mixture to help uh, replace the electrolytes and glucose lost through the diarrhea and also the water. If you want to make like a DIY oral hydration solution, you can take one liter of boiled water, a half a teaspoon of salt, six teaspoons of sugar, and a mashed banana for potassium ions, and drink the liter. Um, I will say, though, that the WHO recommends that an adult an adult drink six liters of this oral hydration solution to treat only moderate diarrhea. So people who have severe diarrhea at that point will start to require IV uh, rehydration therapy. Like I said, that's safe for the very severe cases, though, and at that point they also start to administer antibiotics to try to decrease the bacterial load. They don't administer antibiotics for everyone, though, because cholera is an environmentally residing bacteria, so there's a large concern for antibiotic resistance. Uh, the WHO estimates that early and proper treatment of cholera can reduce the case fatality to 1%. Um, but also, children under 5 receive zinc, and apparently that reduces the duration of diarrhea. Um, so oral rehydration therapy is the primary treatment. However, there are three vaccines that are recommended by the World Health Organization. Um, they are relatively short-lived vaccines, though, so they're primarily only recommended to people who live in like endemic areas or they're given to people during like a humanitarian crisis where there's going to be a high risk of cholera. So like Haiti after their earthquake in 2010 or in areas that are having like an active outbreak. So like if Houston were to have an outbreak, um, just at any point, they would start to give the vaccine out there, but they don't give it out regularly, especially not in the U.S. Um, part of that's because of the short duration. And also it often requires multiple doses. So you really only get it if you're in one of these areas or if you like visit an endemic area over a multi-year time span. While like the vaccine is effective for a short duration, the primary thing that needs to be established during a cholera outbreak, though, is access to safe water and strong sanitation practices. And those will what be those will what will eventually lead to the end of an outbreak. The vaccine helps, but because it can circulate for so long, and especially in asymptomatic hosts, it's primarily establishing these safe conditions that'll like cause it to stop. So I guess if there was a science and society message here, it's that there's a huge importance on publicly funded infrastructure. So sewage, water. Yeah, yeah. A lot of um, fecal oral like diseases could be primarily stopped if there's strong um, sanitation and safe water practices. I know in 2010, the reason that Haiti had such like a bad outbreak of diarrheal diseases was because the government, after the earthquake, wasn't funding, funneling enough money into reestablishing those safe practices after the earthquake. Diarrheal diseases are a huge cause of death in like children in underdeveloped countries, so it's really important that we establish these practices. 
Thank you for listening to episode three, Confessions of a Cholera Girl. Show notes, transcripts, citations, and social media links are available on our website at truemomix.com. Speaking of New Orleans, we've been playing a video game that's set in like 1890s New Orleans. It's a make-believe town, but I mean, it's New Orleans and it's in Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. So when we first started playing, I didn't have like my own Xbox yet. And so I played on my little brothers. And so we were only playing online when it was in the beta. So we were kind of just running around online having fun. And we decided to try to acquire like all the animals, I guess. Um, And for some reason, we started in the swamps and Dr. Edwards was trying to get alligators. And if I'm going to go hunting, I'm not going to bring you know, the video game guns with me. I'm going to wrestle it. Hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, I guess it's like a show of stupidity instead of strength. Um, But yeah, he would try to fight all these alligators hand-to-hand. And just like in real life, an alligator will take like three seconds, like snap you in half. And so he kept (laughs) trying to fight all of these alligators and they would just like bite his arm and I'd watch it like thrash and then he'd die. It got to a point where there were like stacks and stacks and stacks of his like characters' bodies from so many alligator deaths. I think the first video game I ever played was actually in seventh grade, and it was uh, Oregon Trail. Wait, really? Yeah, where no matter what happens, you're going to die from dysentery. Yeah, yeah. So I played that in like third grade, but I've been playing video games my whole life. I don't think it existed yet for me until like 7th grade or 8th grade. Computers were new. You're old. Um, yeah, no, I played it in like 3rd grade. Um, I remember they had it on the computers at my elementary school. And I remember like playing it then. I was like, man, this is an old game. Um, <laughs> and I would play it. And I don't ever know that I like got through it successfully... But I really enjoyed it, and I remember I did die of, like, dysentery a lot, a lot, a lot. Did you know, though, that the CDC has, like, a renewed Oregon Trail-style game, but with uh, the 1918 flu? No, I did not know that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So, um, it's a very, like, shortened version, because it was just, like, a promo for a safe, like, hygiene practices in regards to an outbreak. But it's a lot of fun, so you're just, like, a citizen going through, I don't really know what city or what town, but a city or town during the 1918 flu and you try to not like get the flu so it took me like five tries to do it successfully but I eventually got it and I got it by minimizing all of my interactions with like the outside world what kinds of interactions um there were a lot of things so I think you start out as like a soldier and I had to go from like base camp into town and I was given the option of riding in like a vehicle with all the other soldiers or walking by myself and I remember I chose to walk by myself so I wouldn't be around and it was like possibly coughing and then I remember there was another one where one of my like comrades died and they were like are you gonna go to his funeral and I was like no I'm not because what if there's sick people there so I didn't go to his funeral and then the last one that I remember there were like multiple ones but the last one I remember was uh It was, like, the hardest one for me to, like, do because I was, like, surely I wouldn't get sick from this, but I was, like, receiving a package from the postman, and I had the option to, like, grab the package from the postman when we, like, knocked on the door or to leave it at the door and, like, wait a day and then bring it in, and 
on like my last attempt, I decided to wait and not open the door for the postman, just like bring it in. And that was what like finally ended up being successful. And I didn't get the flu that time and I survived the pandemic, but it took like five tries and I eventually just was living in like solitude. That's so Gen Z of you. Okay, you know what? Gen Z's great. It's not my fault we're all lonely. <laughs> 